You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, presented by Veteran Strategies and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. Today, our guest is former IU basketball star and Mr. Basketball for the state of Indiana in 1998, Tom Coverdale. Thank you very much, Tom, for joining us. Thank you, Robert. Thanks for having me. Well, we're having you on uh, specifically to talk not only about IU basketball and, and your um, experiences with Coach Knight and and various other things that you've accomplished on the hardwood, but uh, you were, uh, I'm going to call you the best shooter on the team that went to the uh, final game in 2002 when IU eventually lost to Maryland. That incredible run, which included a, an upset of Duke, with number one seed and the defending national champion. And uh, as most of us in the state of Indiana, unless they're bitter Purdue fans, were cheering your team on, we just simply couldn't believe it was happening. And at one point, uh, Tom had the most famous sprained ankle in the country. And we'll talk about somebody who actually asked you about that, a celebrity, a few months later. Uh, tell us a little bit about your love for basketball when you started playing. Is it kind of a typical Hoosiers story? You know, it really is. I, I grew up with two older brothers that were five and seven years older than me. So, you know, you're I was that annoying little kid that wanted <laughs> to play with their older brothers. And basically my mom made me, made them let me play with everything they were doing outside. So that's really how I got into athletics because my family was so into athletics. So growing up, you know, I played football, baseball, uh, basketball, a little bit of soccer, and, and I really just fell in love with the sport of basketball, and, and, and it really just continued to grow and, and really grew up an Indiana basketball fan. So I was one of those kids that would, you know, throw the remote at the games and watched <laughs> it with my family and just, you know, was, was totally into, you know, the Bob Knight era of Indiana basketball as a child. Were you, I'm guessing you're born in 80? Yeah, 1980. So are you old enough? You're obviously not old enough to remember the 81 team, but the 87 team, I'm sure you were cheering on. Yeah, that was one of my first memories of really just falling in love with the NCAA tournament and IU basketball. So In 1987, I'll, IU and, won the national championship, I think 74-73 over Syracuse and featured a an All-American, an all-time Hoosier basketball hero, Steve Alford. Did you find him an inspiration or an idol I mean you're about the same height could both stroke it you know both played in the backcourt yeah it really started with him but at that point I was real seven only seven years old so it was really just the team and 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 just falling in love with Indiana basketball I would say in the early 90s when I got closer to 11 and 12 years old the, the teams of Damon Bailey Calvert Chaney and that whole group is really what set it over the edge and I, I knew you know, my ultimate dream was to be able to play at Indiana. At Noblesville, was it considered much of a basketball school? I mean, you've got kind of traditionally great basketball high schools, uh, Marion and, and Carmel and, you know, various other ones. Cathedrals had good runs. And back in the day, it was Anderson and those sorts of places. Uh, what did you do in terms of Noblesville high school basketball? What was that like? I would say growing up, you know, a lot of my idols were high school basketball players because when you're a younger kid, and especially back in those days, I would consider Noblesville a basketball town. You know, we, I think the last regional championship before I got there was 1963, but you got to remember this is when every time they won sectional, they'd go to the Anderson Regional. So, and the, Anderson the, had some real powerhouses and they were unbelievable growing up. So, I remember you know, the names of like, you know, Larry Simmons, Scott Hafner, Tony Etchison, that all were great players at Noblesville and had a lot of great teams. Um, and then, of course, my brother played as well. So going to every single game, 
you know, you grew up in that atmosphere. And then the first dream is to be able to play at the high school level and be on that court that you grew up watching those guys play. And this is, this is pre-class basketball. So your point about the Anderson regional. Yes. Yeah. The, the class basketball deal is kind of a sore subject for me. The first year of that they went to class basketball was my senior year. So we, uh, you know, the year before my junior year, when it was the last one big tournament, uh, we got to the elite eight and were one game away from the final four. And then my senior year, we had, it ended up being looking back on it now, three Mr. Basketballs all in the same sectional. And we were really with who we, uh, you, you know, Pike was ranked second in the state and they Gardner. had, uh, they had two Indiana all-stars from my class, Rodney Smith, Isaac Kincaid and Chris Thomas, who won Mr. Oh, yeah. Basketball yeah, as a Pike. freshman. Right. I think we were ranked fifth in North central with Jason Gardner was ranked seventh. And, and we drew Pike the first game lost by two points. And, uh. The career was over. So you know, as someone who who wants to walk in front of a train when I lose an internet chess game, how the whatever Spangle, it's very important. How do you, Jimmy Connors, famously that the tennis player famously said one time, the pain of losing is is much more impactful than the joy of winning. How do you? handle those close games you know we'll get to the championship game later in which I know you were still recovering from your injury but how do you handle those sorts of losses when you're playing at the high at the penultimate games at whatever level you're playing in I think that's the hardest thing when you're in a competitive environment but I think the the good teams and the good players do it a certain way and harness their that frustration and energy into effort the next following days and weeks and months going forward so that's what I always tried to do you know and 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 I think I learned that at a young age when I got beat a lot by brothers that were five and seven years older than me you know I remember you know playing with them all the time and and getting pushed into the goalpost and getting hurt (laughs) and stuff like that but you know if you grow up in that kind of environment with all boys and and you really have nothing to do but shake it off and keep going. But, you know, definitely high school and college losses when you get into that uh, are definitely frustrating, And but you got to harness that energy and move forward, especially when you're in the middle of a season. When I was in college and then a few years out of college, I refereed basketball just as a way to make money. And um, I've refereed a lot of AAU. And the intensity of AAU basketball and the importance of AAU basketball isn't perhaps appreciated by people who aren't involved with the sport. Uh, How hard is it to be, to play in those leagues, to play in those games, whether it's AAU or another club, and not take it so seriously, especially when your parents are screaming their heads off? Is it just something you just ignore? Or is it something you're like, you know, look, I need my mom or dad to kick me every once in a while? Well, I think it, I think when you're trying to get to the highest level, you kind of embrace it. I'm not talking about the parents yelling at you from the stands, but the overall environment. You know, I was lucky enough, uh, you know, I'm of the opinion that AAU basketball has changed so much, kind of for the worse, in my opinion. Um, if you look at some of the coaches today, and I was in college coaching for six years after I got done playing, and I can see kind of, uh, you know, the coaches. There there are a lot of great AAU coaches in the state of Indiana, but when I was in the South and worked in Louisiana and Texas, a lot of these coaches don't have the same basketball mindset that, you know, it's kind of what can I get or what can I get from these kids, which is really unfortunate. And when I was growing up, we had – you know, the same group of seven to eight guys that we, you know, were seven or eight of the best players in the state in my class. And mm-hmm. our coach was J.R. Holmes, which is a Hall of Fame coach from Bloomington South High Very School. Famous. Just want, just became the all-time winningest coach in Indiana high school basketball. So when you go, it, it just shows how fortunate I was through my youth that, you know, I had a high school coach in Dave McCullough who's going to be a future Hall of Famer. 
And then every summer I'm being coached by J.R. Holmes, who's already a Hall of Famer. And that just kind of shows the difference, I think, of the landscape of AAU basketball. Before, when I was growing up, it was a lot of high school coaches that were involved. And now I think it's a lot of a lot of individuals that have other jobs that aren't involved in high school basketball. It's more of a parent scene. At any at any level of your play, why you played, did you ever feel any sympathy for the referees? Not during the game. <laughs> Especially if they <laughs> – my brothers and friends tell me all the time that you never committed a foul your whole career in your head, which I disagree with sometimes. Yeah, the, the phrase is, the phrase is um, um, never fouls and always gets fouled. That's right. But, you know, I, I – I got along great with officials when we were winning, but if we were losing, you know, I, I definitely could be an <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> and I it's, admit it's that a tough now game. that I'm done. I mean, it's it's a tough. Excuse me, it's a tough gig. As a matter of fact, I think in the Star, Indy Star, a couple of months ago, there was an article that the the pool of of refs are shrinking, and they attribute a lot of. I mean, they don't pay very well. Obviously, I mean, I made either fifteen bucks a game, twenty five bucks a game. You know, it just depend on what I've uh, refereed. And uh, that people are tired of being screamed at and yelled at and that, that, that the overall culture of the games is deteriorating. Maybe that's society as a whole and it's just mirroring it. Is there any point in which you thought, you know what, I know this game pretty well and, and I'll just don the, 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 the black and white stripes and show them how it's done? Not at one time have I ever thought about being a ref. <laughs> Because you, you didn't what, want to deal with Tom Coverdale? Yeah, I didn't want to deal with people <laughs> like myself when I played. But, no, in all seriousness, when I got done with coaching, uh, you know, it got to a point where it was kind of, you know, what are you doing? You know, I would go back down south, and the, and the only thing I was thinking about was when it was the next time I'm going to get home to see my family and friends. And then I went through a period of time where my mom passed away in 2010, and it was kind of, you know – you know, a, a looking in the mirror moment for me of what's most important. So that's when I got out of coaching, came home, and, and you know, I, I, I don't regret for a second getting out of coaching or the game because I know I had done it for such a long time. Now, you know, your priorities change, and that's family and kids and being able to spend time with them. And, you know, up until about six or seven years ago, I really didn't have a weekend free my whole life. And now I, believe it. I think people take that for granted, you know, when you're in coaching and you're playing, you're either working out or practicing six days a week, even in the off season, whether it's recruiting or working out while you're still at school. So having that free time is definitely something I don't take for granted now. You are listening to Leaders and Legends presented by Veteran Strategies and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. Our guest today is 1998 Indiana Mr. Basketball, Tom Coverdale, Mr. Basketball of New Mexico and Mr. Basketball of Delaware, who gives a damn? Mr. Basketball Indiana, that's a significant honor. Tell me what it was like when you uh, were told that you received the honor and some of the people you talked to who received the honor before because there's a whole lot of incredible, amazing basketball players that came before you. Yeah, I mean, it really started after my junior year when I thought, and my high school coach talked to me about the chance that you have a chance to win this if you have a really good year. And, you know, they used to, I don't, I think they still do it, but they had the junior all-stars play the all-star team. And I was picked, you know, they had a core six that went north and south, and then they picked six players in the south and six players in the north, and that's how they made the 12-man roster. So being picked as a part of those those six and playing really well in those games, I knew I was considered at that point you know, along with a handful of other ones. Um, Who was on that senior team? Who'd you play against? I mean, it's been a lot. Um, it doesn't seem like yeah, it's been that forever ago, but it had 20 years. That that year, it was Luke Recker, who was Mr. Basketball, mm -hmm. and they had Mike Mincer and people like that. They had a really good team. We actually beat them in Batesville as juniors. So, you know, that was a, a moment that, you know, sticks out in your high school career, being able to do that as part of a junior all-star team. But – you know, going into my senior year, I knew, um, you know, and this just goes back to how great of a coach I had. If if we accomplished all of our team goals and had a really good year, uh, the individual stuff would, would take care of itself. So, you know, actually how I found out was I was on my senior year spring break in Panama City <laughs> with all my high school friends that I grew up with, and I knew – 
that Saturday was the top 40 workout before I left. And, uh, you know, the head of the all-star committee just said, Hey, I need a name and number. If you are the, the winner, uh, we're going to call you Wednesday night. And if you're not, I'm going to let your coach know and your dad or your coach will call and say that someone else got it. And so of course, all my friends have everyone who's in Panama city from our high school in our two rooms. (laughs) I think there was about 25 to 30 of us there just waiting on the phone to ring. And, and we got the call and, and it was, you know, something I'll never forget celebrating with a lot of the friends I grew up with playing basketball from when I was like five or six years old. And did you, is there a, is there an event where a former Mr. Basketballs are there? I mean, do they have like reunions or how do you, do you ever get together? That sort of thing? You know, there really isn't a set, you know, thing that where Mr. Basketballs get together. But, you know, however, it is cool when you run into certain guys that you know have won the award, you know, like, you know, Dave and Billy Shepard, Shepard from Carmel, Carmel. who I've Mm -hmm. met. And then, you know, some of the more recent ones, you know, like, you know, Gary Harris and people like that. So, you know, it is obviously it's a a unbelievable honor to be a part of that. As far as a set thing where we all get together, Mm -hmm. I I don't think there's anything like that. Who, Who finished second? Do you remember? Your year? It was Maynard Lewis, who went to Purdue, and Queth Dwayne, who went to Syracuse. And do you get anything for the award? I mean, you get the number one jersey, I know, but is there anything else that you get? Yeah, received? they give you a Mr. Basketball ring, which I still have it at home. Did, did that make a difference in how, as we move on to your college career, did that seal the deal, do you think, in some ways for – coach Knight to recruit you to IU no I got offered from Indiana after my junior year so I had committed to Indiana the summer before my senior year so it, it was all already set that I was going there before that award came out one of the things that people seem to be critical lately of IU basketball is their inability to recruit and retain Mr. Basketballs from the state of Indiana do you see I mean Romeo obviously is a is a exception. I, mean, I think maybe Cody Zeller was the last one before then. How important is it for IU to retain what is a disproportionate amount of in-state talent when it comes to basketball? I think it's getting better uh, over the last couple of years. I think it is very important. And one of the biggest reasons why I think it is, is because if you grow up in Indiana and I know it's a little different these days because kids grow up loving all different types of colleges, whether it's close to home or not. But I do think if you still get that Indiana kid that has that love for the game and love for basketball, uh, it does help your team. And I think for two reasons. After being around the country, I think that uh, Indiana high school basketball coaches are second to none, and I'd put them up against any state. So I think Indiana kids are – more coached better than a lot of other kids from around the country doesn't have anything to do with talent but just a basketball IQ and coach and then secondly it's a burning desire to know what Indiana fans are about and how much they love basketball and I think when that's ingrained in you you have a certain pride when you take the floor and wear that jersey and just don't take it for granted if you're an out-of-state kid now obviously out-of-state kids throughout the years you know, can have that same pride. It's not that it's just only Indiana kids can have that. I think Oladipo had that and some other other kids that come through the program. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think it helps. And I think over the last couple of years, if you've seen, when you get kids like Fennessey and Romeo Lankford, um, and then you've got the Jackson kid from Center Grove uh, who are all going to Indiana, I think it's heading in the right direction as far as recruiting the state of Indiana. And to your point you made just a few minutes ago, perhaps not you because, but I mean, an Alford or maybe even, maybe even Bailey's era or in between, you didn't have the ability to watch 500 basketball games a week. I mean, I grew up, I'm 51 years old. I grew up and it was Chuck Marlowe and whomever else and the Bob Knight show. And you saw the IU games and hell, they used to, Channel 4 used to televise the scrimmages. 
that's how big it was. People probably don't understand that because now, like, you know, last night you were watching Belmont or you can see any of these games you want either on demand or through. So it's you can say you can get more attached to, say, a school that you wouldn't have thought of. I don't know how many kids left Indiana to go to Kansas, let's say, in the late 70s or mid-80s. But now you see those teams and you can fall in love with them or fall in love with that program. Yeah, I think it's a snowball effect, too. I mean, we grew up with – Indiana and Final Fours and winning national championships and the lady mopping the floor <laughs> during the pregame. Singing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Where these kids, you know, I mean, you know, our our team was the last Final Four team and that was 02 and we're in 2019. So I think whenever you have, you know, a lack of tournament success, I mean, we've had some, but at Indiana, you really don't judge success off of sweet 16s. Let's be honest. Exactly. So when you have that lack of kids, just haven't grown up with the Indiana winning ways that we did as children. So I think that's why it's so important and so much harder now to get over that edge. And that snowball effect is just continuing to roll and roll. And, and when you don't win and have success in the tournament and younger kids can't see that, it's even harder year after year to get over that hump. Did you get recruited at all by Gene Cady? I did, but I didn't get offered a scholarship. So it came down to me and Maynard Lewis, and they offered Maynard Lewis over me. And that's when the recruiting with Purdue stopped. But I did take a go to a couple games when I was freshman and sophomore in high school. Do you remember your record against Purdue? Not exactly. I think I lost maybe once. But, you know, that was during <laughs> one of their one of their that was during some of their down years. Um, when still we don't care as long as you beat Purdue, exactly. it doesn't really matter. Before you went to IU to play for Coach Knight, did you read uh, A Season on the Brink? I didn't, but I heard all the locker room rants and all that, that kind of stuff. That you were on the famous one on the internet? Exactly, and all my <laughs> friends are like, are you scared to no- go there? I'm like, no, I can't wait until I get there, and he yells at me, and I'll call and tell you when it happens. The, the, we can't repeat the famous locker room rant, which I believe was the after the freshman year of the Cheney and Greg and Pat Graham uh, class, uh, where Knight just – it's like – 45 seconds long but you think it was four hours long I, I haven't heard that many f-words in uh since basic training actually it would probably be the last time was any of that intimidating you said you couldn't wait to go there but but you know Knight's reputation as as a brilliant coach a successful coach was certainly uh, part and parcel fighting with his reputation of I mean, basically a psycho I can't think of another word for I mean it's just a temperamental nutcase well I think intimidation probably wouldn't be the right word because you you knew and, and growing up in that era is so much different than now in my opinion I mean my dad yelled at me all the time growing up playing basketball at a young age and that's just kind of how you got motivated um, you know, the thing I will say about Coach Knight is is what a lot of people don't realize is the guy is 6'5", like 290 or whatever. So, And he had one of those voices that when he yelled and he's in a locker room or a room and it's just you, he had one of those voices that not only was louder than anything you've ever heard in your life, but it scared the hell out of you. <laughs> but um, I, I think, you know, if you go there and you play um, – it's not really an intimidation factor because you know certain days he's going to yell at you and motivate you and try to get the most out of you. But but deep down, I think you know some people can be motivated by that and some people can't, and that's why he recruited the way he did. He recruited kids that he felt like could handle tough coaching. What was it like the first time he walked into your living room? Because he's a very big man. Yeah. Well, he actually never walked into the he living room. He never came room. to visit you in your home? No, because the first time I talked to him, he knew I wanted to come to Indiana, so I think he <laughs> didn't have to recruit me that hard. But one of my favorite stories is, I'll never forget this, the first time they invited me to come down to Bloomington for a game, it was me and my parents and, and the assistant coach. is like, all right, Tom, if we win, uh, come down. I'll talk to you. You probably won't go in the locker room and see coach if we lose. <laughs> Which I thought was what Get I was in like, your car. I hope they win. <laughs> um, 
So they won the game. Luckily, we went down there. They took me and my dad in the locker room, and they had my mom meet us in a lounge somewhere. And when we got to the lounge, it was just, uh, you know, well, first me and my dad getting to go into the locker room and seeing that for the first time was was a great experience. But then getting in there, it was me and my dad and my parents uh, and the assistant coaches just talking, waiting on coach to get there. And he kind of walked in, and that was the first time I had seen him up close and had a conversation with him. And, you know, the shock of how big he was and seeing him on TV your whole life, you know, you are kind of starstruck as a, you know, 14 or 15-year-old kid. Um, But, you know, I'll never forget the first thing he said. He said, well, son, you think you want to come here? And I said, yeah, I think so. And I thought that was a good answer at the time. (laughs) But he said, son, you think so? He goes, I'm not going to effing beg you to come here. Do you want to come here or not? (laughs) And I said, yes, sir, I do. And, you know, of course, my parents being Indiana fans or whatever, they thought it was great. I think he knew our whole family was Indiana fans and he could talk that way. But it's just a funny story that me and my parents got to share together and talked about the rest of our lives, you know, our first conversation. And he wasn't offering a scholarship then and but he was just saying, you know, you keep doing everything you're doing. You're you're doing an unbelievable job at a, you know, as a freshman and sophomore in high school, and keep it up, and you may have a chance to play here. Did after high school you went to prep school? And you correct me if I'm wrong on this. So you landed at IU. You played one year for Knight. Is that correct? Yeah. So when Coach Knight offered me the scholarship. Uh, he had sent his son, Pat Knight, right. and a couple other players to New Hampton Prep in New Hampshire. And what this is, is it, I mean, they have six scholarships per location, and that league is unbelievable. So each team had at least six or seven Division One basketball players. So it's not your normal high school uh, league. Um, but the reason he won, he said, you know, we have Michael Lewis, A.J. Guyton, and Luke Jimenez, who are all going to be juniors um, and you've never played point guard before. You know, you're you're in high school. I was coming off screens. Yeah, I'd bring it up occasionally, but I want you to go there, play against this competition night in, night out, and that'll space it out. So when you come in as freshmen, Lewis and Guyton and all those guys will be seniors. And so that – I mean, that year in my development, being able to play point guard against – some unbelievable – I mean, Karan Butler was in that league, DeMar Johnson, Avery Queen, who played at Michigan. Mm-hmm. I mean, a couple guys that played at Pitt. Um, unbelievable league to play in. And being able to play in that league and in that competition and have have success, I think really propelled me and got me to a point where, uh, you know, it, it helped my career at Indiana immensely. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, presented by Veteran Strategies and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. Our guest today is Tom Coverdale, Indiana Mr. Basketball, 1998, point guard on the 2002 Final Four and title game team. The year you played for night, what was that like? Was it what you expected, or or was it better or worse? Well, it was worse for me, not from a night perspective, but I didn't get to play a lot, which was the first time in my career. I played 40 minutes the whole year um, and was just really a backup. But it was definitely one of the biggest learning experiences of my life. And, and people ask me all the time, and, and I've heard this said, you know, you were in Knight's doghouse so bad. You know, that was the only year I got to play for him, and I really didn't even play. He got let go the next year. But the bottom line was I wasn't in his doghouse. I just wasn't good enough. And and that's the fact. I couldn't guard anybody as a freshman. And you're playing behind Guyton and Lewis still. And Guyton was either Big Ten player of the year or darn close. So, I mean, anytime you're in that situation, I just knew, um, you know, I just took it upon myself. I knew I could score. I knew I was good enough offensively to play in the Big Ten. Um, But I just took it upon myself. Every day in practice, I guarded A.J. Guyton and Michael Lewis almost every possession and and Guyton was an all-american that year so the first 2 months of the year i mean he's just bucket after bucket after bucket <laughs> which can be kind of demoralizing but um by the end of the year i felt like i was you know having some really good defensive possessions against guys like that and against guys like Michael Lewis who was the all-time assist leader at Indiana at the time so you know that room for growth really propelled my my career and then that summer going into my sophomore year even before coach Knight was fired 
was probably the best off season I've ever had in my career. So going into that, that summer we had started workouts and, and, you know, I knew I had a really good chance to be the starting point guard and and I knew I was definitely going to be in the rotation. So, you know, that kind of frustrates me when people say I wasn't going to play if Knight stayed there, because I knew I was. He was still the coach. We had had There's conversations. No reason to assume that you wouldn't have played. Um, but, yeah, I think it was more on me than him as a freshman because I didn't – I did I wasn't at the capability I was that I got to show as a sophomore. And it made you think that the, the prep school decision was the right one? I mean, how much further would you have been behind if you hadn't gone there? Exactly. I mean, I think, you know, I – I wasn't the quickest guy, but it allowed me to get stronger, and I needed that strength to be able to guard people and, and body them up to play in the Big Ten and in that prep school year. And then even my freshman year, even though I didn't play, that allowed me to do that and have experience every single day against great players that I was going against. The firing of Coach Knight for, for folks who were not around or were not paying attention was, was a seismic event in this state as anything that I can think of. Um, probably the biggest single news story of the last 15 years or 18 years in this state, maybe, no, the Super Bowl would be number one, but at night's two or three, I mean, you had to have grown up in the 70s and 80s and 90s in this state to understand how much power Knight had, uh, whether he wielded it for good or ill is depending on your opinion of him. Uh, just talk a little bit, if you can, about the circumstances and the atmosphere and the experience of going through that time period where the Neil Reed video hits and then he's put on double secret probation or whatever the hell it was called. And then he has the uh, confrontation with the student. And then all of a sudden, basically, the campus just starts to devour itself. It was a crazy time, to say the least. And I think looking back on it, you know, even when the stuff happened with the kid and he supposedly grabbed his arm, when we're on the team and playing, we're, we're still thinking nothing's going to happen. They're not going to get rid of coach. There's no way. Um, because he he was kind of – you know, in, in quotes, bigger than the university at that time. And anybody that was in Indiana kind of realized that. So until it actually happened, we really didn't believe anything would happen. And then I think we were in shock just like everyone else. So, you know, then all the riots starting on campus and, and for the first time we're all together at a house looking at each other and we don't even have a coach. So then things just started happening so fast, you know, there's the anger of four or five guys that are saying, I'm definitely transferring. Let's, I'm getting out of here. Who else is going? Where do you guys want to go? And I'm sitting there as a freshman that played 40 minutes, and I'm like, where the hell am I going to go? <laughs> I'm definitely not leaving. I loved Coach Knight and wanted to play for him, but I grew up an Indiana fan as well. And after not playing your freshman year, there's no way – I could have probably left and went to a mid-major or, or a, another school, but nothing at the caliber of Indiana. So I, there's never once I thought about leaving. So you had that aspect of it. And then you had, okay, who's going to be the next clo coach? We're so close to the season. Is September, it, as I remember. Yeah, is, is it going to be – they're not going to bring in someone from the outside. So then you have start having conversations with the assistant coaches and, and you, you know, you had coach Davis and coach tree Lord who coach tree Lord had been a head coach before. And that's who I was really close with at the time. Um, and I think not everybody would have stayed together on that team if it wasn't for what coach tree Lord did. And basically what he did is he st took a step back and he said, coach Davis, let's push for you to be the head coach. I want to stay with you. I, I don't want to be the head coach, but I want to stay here and make sure all these kids stay together because we could have a really good team. And for him as a man to step up and do that, I mean, here you are your whole career. You know, he should have, he probably should have been the front runner to be that coach in that job, but to, to push it to Mike Davis, like he did, um, you know, I think is what kind of brought groups together. So, um, and then, you know, going from that, it was, you know. You also had some real talent coming in, as I believe that was Jared Jeffries' freshman year. He exactly. Was, I think he was Mr. Basketball, was recruited by everybody to come 
including uh, Duke and all the big schools. He ended up choosing IU. He went to high school in Bloomington. So as I recall, that's one of the things that Knight said publicly. He, he lamented the fact that he didn't get – he recruited Jeffries, but he never got a chance to, to coach him. Yeah. So you had some real talent coming in for that year. What was it like when you walked on the court the first day of practice and there's no Bob Knight? Well, in assembly hall or wherever you practice it was it was day. i'll never forget our first it was we were still doing conditioning at the time and it was preseason workouts and we hadn't started actual practice yet but after the press conference of coach davis getting the job we went in the locker room and he basically said all right i'll see you guys at 5 30 tomorrow and i'll never forget a player saying well in the afternoon he said no in the morning we're meeting out on the track so we get out there at 5 30 and in by far, it was probably the hardest conditioning workout I did in my whole career at Indiana. And I think we had several people that had injuries. Uh, half the team was puking. And <laughs> and I'll, I'll never forget, we had, I think it was only seven people that finished the workout. And, and looking back on that, it was our starting five that went to the Final Four. It was Jeff Newton, and then it was a walk-on named Ryan Tapak, who was from Perry Meridian, Mm -hmm. who was just tough as nails. And I think that kind of set the tone of that group going through everything together um, and just kind of showed the mental toughness we had. But he was setting a tone to the fact of, yeah, coach is gone, but the the way you're going to work and compete and play is not going to change. So I think that was a defining moment on the first day of conditioning right after that press conference. Mike Davis's first year as coach, I actually went to two or three games. Uh, but the one game I didn't go to, which I wish I would have gone to, is the one against Michigan State. Talk about that game a little bit, where, uh, if memory serves, Kirk Haston strokes it as the clock uh, winds down to zero. Michigan State was number one. What was it like to play in that game, in a game like that? It was... Yeah, I've told this story before, but it is a funny story. It went from the most excited I've ever been in my life up until that point to the sm- to the most terrified I've ever been. And let, <laughs> and let me let me explain why. So we, you know, we obviously run that play. Haston hits an unbelievable shot, hits a three at the buzzer. Uh, we win by one. So he's sprinting down to the other end of the court, and I'm the first player to get to him. And I jump. We both jump in the air, and we kind of tackle each other, and we both fall to the floor. So we're literally both on the ground, on our sides, basically face-to-face looking at each other, screaming like an excitement. Well, the next thing you know, the whole team jumps on top of us, and then they stormed the floor. And I think the whole student section was on top of the team at this point, and we're at the bottom. And the only thing we can see is it's pitch black, and we can still kind of see each other's faces. And I literally could not breathe for probably close to a minute and 15 seconds, if I had to guess. It seemed like an hour and a half. And luckily, uh, we had an assistant coach named Ben McDonald who's about – Six five. Yeah, he's a big guy. Two percent body fat, and probably <laughs> weighed two forty. And the next thing I saw, I swear, it was right before I was getting ready to pass out, and he's just throwing kids off of the pile. And we jumped up, and me and Hasten kind of looked at each other and took the biggest breath. <laughs> and then we just started hugging everybody like it never even happened because <laughs> we were so excited. But that 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 is what I remember from that game. But again, that was the first time. I was a part of a game where we beat a team like that and actually was on the floor and playing. So that's a, that's a moment I'll forget. I'll, I'll remember for the rest of my career. And it may be safe to say that that, that game, that win against what was a dominant Michigan state team uh, may have allowed coach Mike Davis to stay another year or get the contract that he ended up getting. When you started the 2001, 2002 season, did you think you had the talent to win the Big Ten Championship, which you ended up sharing, and have the talent to go deep in the NCAA tournament? 
I think we did because we, if you remember correct, my sophomore year we were a four seed in the tournament and had a really good, you know, end of the year. So we got to the Big Ten championship game in, in the in the Big Ten tournament. So going into that year, even though we had lost Kirk Case into the NBA, we knew Jeffries was going to be even better as a sophomore. We had almost everyone else returning. Um, so we knew we could be good, but the beginning of the year didn't turn out that way. We started out seven and five and I'll never forget me and Jared Odell having a conversation. And at that point, I think I forget exactly how many years it was, but the big thing at Indiana is we've been to 17 or 18 consecutive NCAA tournaments and we lost a Butler at, uh, Bankers Life Fieldhouse and we were seven and five mm -hmm. going before we went to conference and we looked at each other and we we're like we cannot be the first team <laughs> to not to break that streak and not go to the tournament so I think again it goes back to everything we had been through with the night firing and all the conditioning and everything we had gone through and from that point on we really became a different team when Big Ten started and Jared Odell ended up coming into the starting lineup and he was kind of that stability defensively that we needed. He wasn't the best scorer in the world. He could when he needed to, but he talk about a defensive player that was just in the right position at the right time that allowed us to be more aggressive on the perimeter, I think was a big factor. But then when you get into the big 10 season and we started beating teams and we were right there to win the championship and ended up winning the championship, uh, I think in the middle of that year uh, is when we knew we could compete with anybody. We just got off to a rough start at the beginning of the year. Correct me if my memory is failing, but my favorite game of the Big Ten season was uh, at Assembly Hall where you all absolutely lit up Illinois, where I don't know how many threes you guys stroked, but it was an incredible number and everyone was hot. What's it like when you – because Illinois, eh. You know, they, they act like they win all the time, and they hardly ever win. But but they're starting kind of a good run for their program. And you guys, it was like 88 to 52, or, I mean, it was just a colossal beatdown. What's it like when you're, when you're hot, for lack of a better term, and everyone's hitting it? It's a really good feeling as a team, but when it's in Assembly Hall, it's the best feeling in the world <laughs> because anybody that's been to a game there knows – especially a big game. If you look back at those years, Illinois, they were a number one seed that year. They were really good. They had, you know, Frankie Williams, a Big Ten player of the year, and a bunch of guys, and Bill Self as the coach. So they were really, really good. I think they were ranked in the top five at that point. Um, but the two things I remember about that game is all the threes we hit and everybody that put one up, it felt like it was going in. And then probably the loudest sound I've ever heard in Assembly Hall or the loudest ever got with me on the floor is when Jeff Newton dunked on, on Lucas Johnson during that game. And it was right at the middle end of a run. We had hit a couple threes, got another steal, and then he came down and did that. Uh, so that was probably the memory that sticks out the most. Talk for just, just – a minute or less if you can about assembly hall because it's Kentucky won't go back there uh, Roy Williams and North Carolina Carolina were there a couple of years ago and, and Roy Williams uh, in the press conference goes I wish our crowd would get that loud they only do that against Duke it really is one of the top five at least if not number one home court advantages uh, atmospheres for college basketball and you've obviously played in a lot of tough venues I'm sure going to Mackey's no day at the beach just what's it like when Assembly Hall's rocking you just when you have a good team and I've, I've I've told people this when you have a good team at Indiana and it's a big game at Indiana and the crowd's behind you and you go on a run you you feel like no one can beat you and that's kind of the feeling we had you know it, when I was in college and, and if you were at home and I think this was the same way in the nineties and, and, and definitely in the seventies and eighties when they were really, really good. But it, if you're up four or five points at halftime at home, you feel like, okay, you, they've hung with us for a half, but if we hit a couple shots, this place is going to get so loud. And I think Indiana fans are knowledgeable. And, and what I mean by that is if you extend a lead to seven points and they know it's either, step on their throat time or the other team's going to get back in the game, that's when they stand up and get loud as can be. And when the the whole place is on their feet and you're on the defensive end and the other team's trying to score, 
first of all, it gives that team so much more energy. And if you've ever been in assembly hall and it's a big possession and you know exactly what I'm talking about, it is hard. That's why it's so hard to beat a good Indiana team at home. The, the best game I've ever went to at assembly hall was, uh, the Zeller Oladipo team is their freshman year, I think, where they beat Ohio State, who was no, – they had beaten Kentucky, number one. Were you at that game where they beat uh, Kentucky? I don't think so. Were you watching the TV when Wofford hit, Watford hit the shot? Well, I blame that on my wife. I was at a wedding of her Just friend. Stop. Just stop there. And I didn't get to watch it, but <laughs> saw the highlight. So, oh, Rachel. <laughs> I, we went on – my kids and I and a friend went – New Year's Eve when they beat Ohio State and Ohio State was ranked number two and it was so loud my kids were looking at me like oh I, they, and they've been to Colts game and Pacers game but I just told them both I'm like that's why you're here it was absolutely deafening the crowd just because they got the, they felt like the resurgence I used back you know had beaten Kentucky and I had never been in an, in an environment with so much noise where they just, it felt like the crowd was just willing the team, like this young team, to finally come back. And IU basketball is going to be where it was in the previous decades. I can only imagine what it's like to walk on that off that floor after a tough game and win. At the same time, what's it like to walk off that court after a tough loss? You feel like you let the crowd down, or what, what would be the emotion? I think walking off that court after a big win is probably what I miss the most about college athletics just because, you know, it starts back of growing up wanting to play there and then having the opportunity to actually do it, just being so blessed to do that. But then being fortunate enough on top of that to have a, be a part of a really good team and win games like that and experience that is what I miss the most just because Assembly Hall is such an amazing place. And like you talked about, if, if you've ever been in the environment where it's that loud and that exciting, it's something that you're going to miss the rest of your life. And then on the other side, as a loss, you know, at that point in our career, it, it was – you know, like I'll take for for instance, it was it was the game that cost us the outright Big Ten championship. We lost to Wisconsin at home, and Jeffries didn't play because he hurt his ankle the game before, and we lost that game at home by two points. And walking off that for, floor, it, it, it's disappointing as a player too. Um, but you also feel like you let an opportunity slip away, and you can feel it in the crowd and the fans and everything too. Just the disappointment at that point, they weren't really mad at us. They knew we gave a good effort, but, um, yeah, definitely demoralizing. But like, like we talked about earlier, it was more of, you know, that's what motivated us to keep going and not let that happen again. Do you go back to games very often? Uh, I've been to several since I moved back home. I didn't get to go to one this year. Um, but you know, I've definitely been back to about three or four since I moved home about six years ago. So it's just tough with kids and life and everything, sure. but um, it, it's definitely fun when I do get to go back. In 2002, you guys, as I recall, again, correct me if my memory's failing in the Big Ten tournament, lose a game to Iowa on the miracle shot from Wrecker. Is that correct? Yeah. So we'll move on from that. <laughs> so you'll go into going into the tournament. Uh, you win a tough first-round game. Your second-round opponent Maybe he's like Old Dominion or someone who had upset South Carolina. Uh, UNC U- Wil- Wilmington. Wilmington, and they had beaten USC. And so you're playing a lo- uh, you're I think, a five seed, and you're playing a lower seed. You win that game. So now you've won the first two games. You're in the Sweet 16 in the East region, if I recall, and you draw defending national champion number one seed, Duke. What were you thinking, like, is it David and Goliath time? We can do this. We got enough talent. Or is it don't get embarrassed? Or what was the emotion playing? Because Duke was, I mean, like it seems to be every year, was on an amazing run of talent. I mean, going into that game, I think we knew we could compete with them, but we didn't know if we could beat them, if that makes sense. Because they were so talented. I mean, their starting five was all in the NBA for a long time. You had... Jason Williams, who was National Player of the Year, Carlos Boozer, Mike Dunleavy, Dante Jones, and and Chris Duhon was their starting five, who all I think had ten year careers. That's unreal. And then 
So going into the game was, I mean, you're excited. You're in the Sweet 16. When you win two play- tournament games, you feel like you can beat anybody. But Duke hadn't lost in like a month and a half. So uh, going into that game, you know, we got down 17 points. And we were like, man, these guys are people, really good. People forget that. In the first half, they were blowing you away. Yeah, they were hitting a bunch of shots. And I was frustrated. I got in foul trouble. I only got to play, I think, three or four minutes in the first half, it seemed like. And and then going into the second half, we knew, hey, we got it We got it down around 13, 12 points if we could just get it under 10 and keep pushing away. And, and I think we just played as hard as we could those first six to eight minutes, and we just kept getting loose ball after loose ball and making play after play. And then, you know, it was about 70% IU fans, and it felt like a home game when it got to the middle of the second half. And, you know, if you're ever in a NCAA tournament environment and the young, the lower seed starts making a run, it is like a home game for that lower seed. And, That's a great and, point. And the momentum just kept going and going and going. It didn't matter how much talent they had. Uh, we, we just – got it close enough and made enough plays at the end to win it. As I recall, Jeffries was Jared Jeffries was particularly uh, effective and strong in that second half. Yeah. He was your, you know, I would say your best player, certainly your most heralded player, but he really took it to him. Yeah, he was the key to that team because every single game, the first couple possessions, we were throwing it into him in the post, and we knew no one in the country could guard him one-on-one. So we would throw it into him, see how teams guarded him. A lot of teams would double, and then he would kick it out every single time, and we had shooters all around him. And, and that, he was heavily recruited by Duke, heavily it, recruited. Yeah, it came down to Indiana and Duke, and he picked Indiana. So when we threw it into him, they weren't doubling him. They thought they could handle him one-on-one, and I think he ended up with 26, 28 points, something like that. So you, forgive me for bringing this up. So we don't want you to feel like you're back at the Hanoi Hilton, but we got to ask. You're up four. Duke has the ball. Play great defense for 99% of the Duke possession. Jason Williams, who was, I think, the number two pick in the draft that year, uh, squares up, shoots a three, gets fouled by Dane Fife, and the ball goes in. So take me uh, through the time after the foul took place and before the free throw was shot. It went from excitement to like we just won this game to hearing that whistle, seeing it go in. And if you've ever if you ever been yelled at by your parent and you get that big lump in your throat <laughs> and you can't swallow, that's exactly what I got. And it just it immediately sunk to your stomach. Um but then at that point, I was like, you know what? I remembered he wasn't a great free throw shooter. I went straight up to Jeffries and I said, look, if he makes this, get it out really quick and I'm going to be standing past the free throw line and just throw it to him because there were still about three or four seconds left. Um, and I think that's what probably caused Jeffries to just stand there and let Boozer get the rebound, which is probably <laughs> my fault. I was going to ask you about that. But but I remember watching it in, I remember watching it in my living room and – by then, I'm assuming, you know, anyone who watches sports was was tuned into the game for various reasons. I felt so sorry for Dane Fife, who was a remarkable player. The IU fans loved him. He's from he was Mr. Basketball in Michigan, as I recall, but comes down to IU to play for night and was such a fan favorite. And I just kept thinking, Oh my God, not this kid. Don't don't become the Bill Buckner of IU basketball. So was it I'm going to kill you or I'm going to put my arms around you or you're going to walk home. What was some of the emotion, you know, I did in between not, the I did foul? not feel sorry for him at all at the time. I wanted to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> and I think Jared Jeffries later said he was going to lock the locker room door and just beat the hell out of him <laughs> if we lost that game. And I've told Dane a, a couple times, like, do you realize how lucky you are? Because if we lost that game – as close as we were, he might have been the Buckner and, and a guy that would have been, you know, an Indiana, you know, punchline for years to come. Luckily, it didn't come to that. But, again, that's just Dane, the way he played. He had a motor about him that just never shut off as far as playing hard. He jumped at a guy and contested a shot when he never should have, but he was trained in his mind to always do that. And 
luckily it didn't didn't affect us. So Jay Williams goes up. She was not a good free throw shooter, to your point. He goes up. He misses the free throw. The ball, to your point about Jeffries, basically just falls into the hands of this brute, for lack of a better term, Carlos Boozer, who was just this massive kid, 6'9", like 270. The ball falls right to him, right underneath the basket, and he bricks this crib. What are you thinking when you see Boozer get the ball and go back up to shoot it? Because then they would have won. It's not Jay Williams shooting a free throws to tie to go to overtime. It's Duke winning by one potentially on Boozer's missed shot. Is it just sheer horror? It was. I mean, it, it all happened so fast, and it was so loud in that place that I, I couldn't – you know, it was like you, you're out of breath when you see he got the rebound. But then in the next split second, he had already missed it, and then we were just like, what just happened? And Newton snatched that yeah. rebound with and two we hands. Were, we were just running up and down. I don't think anybody knew what we were doing, just celebrating. And it, it was Cause talk I think, about a range of emotions in a split, you know, about five to ten seconds. And, and forgive me, but am I correct in remembering that Davis didn't shake Krzyzewski's hand? Like he ran out to be with the players, and he completely forgot and – then Shashevsky, did he come to your bus or your locker room? Yeah, he did. We, I, Davis just ran straight on the court and started <laughs> celebrating with us. But, you know, something I'll always remember is we get done with showers and all that. We're on our bus, and it's underneath, you know, we're parked in like the underneath, you know, the basement of the arena. And I don't know why they do this, but literally the Duke bus is right next to us, and you can look in and see their whole team. Like, we're literally probably five feet away from them. So we're trying not to be just complete jerks and be celebrating, but we're so excited. (laughs) They're all sitting in there, and we're just kind of looking like, look at all that talent sitting over there. Can you believe we just beat them? Hundreds of millions of dollars in pro money. Yeah. Yeah. They got the last laugh with their bank accounts, but at that moment, we <laughs> felt like we were better basketball players. Because Jeffries was the only first-round pick from that team. Yeah, he's the only one that ever played in the NBA on that team. And people forget that Shashevsky coached at IU. He coached. He was an assistant coach for night in the 74-75 team. They went 31-1 and and then lost to Kentucky in the regional final due to Scott May's broken arm. Yeah. So he must have some residual affection for IU. I think that's come out in yeah. in uh, subsequent times when he's when he's brought his team to Bloomington. What did he say when he came on so the bus? So he, he, we're sitting there, and he just stepped on the front of the bus, and it got real quiet because, you know, he all the respect that everybody has for the man. And he just said, hey, I just wanted to tell you guys firsthand congratulations. You guys are by far the toughest team we played all year, and I'll be rooting for you. Good luck. And he just walked off the bus. And we all just kind of looked at each other. And that, at that, I mean, that was a lot of class. Because when you lose a game like that and you're, you're favored to win the whole tournament, for him to take the time to do that I thought was, was pretty incredible. Especially considering that school had fired his mentor and former coach, Bob Knight. So that gets you into the Elite Eight, and we'll kind of wrap up here quickly. You win the next two games. You beat – I know you beat Oklahoma in the Final Four. Kent State. In the regional the final, eight. Kent State. As I recall, the Oklahoma game, was that the, the game where you guys came out stroking it again? Or was that more Kent State? One of the two games you, you guys know, came out and just made like 10 three-pointers in a row. Yeah, that was the beginning of the Kent State. Okay. And I think that was the perfect team to play after a beating Duke because that's the team that beat us in the first round of the tournament the year before when we were oh, yeah, a four right. seed. So it was easy to get up for that game when they had knocked you out of the tournament. But that was a really good team. They had really good guards. And then obviously Antonio Gates, who ended up being Hall of Fame football player. <laughs> but – uh, it was definitely the perfect team to play in that moment. So you get to the Final Four. No one predicts you're going to be there. Cinderella story, to quote Caddyshack. It's got to be big for Coach Davis, his second year, replacing um, the legend Bob Knight. What was it like to play in the Final Four? Um, it, from a just an atmosphere and in an, a media standpoint, uh, it, I tell people it take it's taking the NCAA tournament or a Sweet 16 game times a hundred, just because, you know, you you have so many different emotions going through. It's it's 
it's a pride that you're playing for your family and friends that are watching you that helped you get to that point. But it's also an excitement knowing that you grew up dreaming of playing there. I mean, every kid who plays basketball watches the final four in the, in the, in the championship game every single year. So just getting to that point and just focus But I also think you're so focused on the game and this is another thing I forget which teammate said it to me, but it kind of sums it up is, you know, we won against Oklahoma and we came back out. We're watching the second game for, you know, five to 10 minutes before we go back to the hotel. And somebody looked up and goes, man, were there this many people in here during our game? <laughs> Cause you're so wrapped up in the game and thinking about what you got to do, what plays are called or whatever. Yeah. The crowd is unbelievable and it's the, the highest point of college basketball, but you're also focusing on what you need to do. So I thought that was a, a funny point, and it kind of gets you through the mindset of a player during that time that you really are trying to block out everything you can around you. At what point you run up against, and then IU ends up losing to Maryland in the in the final game, which I mean I couldn't even imagine it. But at what point did you go? Okay, we're just we just don't we're not going to beat these guys because it was like it was a twelve point. I think it was 12, like 64-52 or something like that. I would say not until the last couple minutes because we were we were up by two points with eight minutes to go. So we were right there, and then just for some reason they made the plays down the stretch and we didn't. And throughout that whole tournament, we were the ones making the plays at the end, and we just didn't make the plays down the stretch. But, you know, talk about getting over defeats, and that's one that I've never gotten over. I've never watched the very end of that game. But you always think back, you know, every time it comes up of four or five certain plays that you wish you would have done different that you can't take back. But, you know, we were just that close to winning a national championship, but we just didn't make the plays down the stretch, and they did. And would it be fair to say that you weren't completely healthy for that game? At I, one point, for those for those of you listening who don't remember that particular season, at one point, Tom Coverdale had the most famous sprained ankle in the country. And all of us who have played basketball for years and dealt with that, that's one of the things you can't watch the replay because you know what's coming. Uh, were you 100% healthy for that game? I definitely wasn't 100%, but I was definitely thankful that I got to play because that whole week – we did nothing but ice compression, ice compression, trying to get all of the swelling out of it. So they literally told me not to put any pressure on it until Friday, and that's when we're going to test it for the first time. So that whole week I was scared to death thinking I may not get to play. Um, so we, when I finally tested it and they did that, you know, yeah, I, I was just thankful I was able to get to play because looking back, if I was able to get to a Final Four and then had to sit out, that would have been oh, devastating. Alan Henderson, paging Alan Henderson, God love him. A few months after that, if I have the chronology right, uh, you had a fella come up to you at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, is that correct? And, and inquire about your ankle completely and totally out of the blue, just kind of walked up and said, how's your ankle? What's that guy doing now? <laughs> yeah, President Trump. So that was a... <laughs> Pretty amazing story. After that, we got asked to be kind of the parade lap at the Indy 500, which is one of the best experiences I've ever had in my life. We, we had two players on the back of a convertible and kind of did the parade lap, but we were on the track right before it started and got to see the amount of people that were actually there and, and that go to that race every year. But, but after that, we got to go to the green room where all the celebrities are and meet sh different people. I'll never forget. We met shooter McGavin, which we thought <laughs> in college was the coolest thing in the world, <laughs> but we were in the top floor. And, and at that time, Donald Trump just came up to me and he said, Hey, how's your ankle doing? I said, it's fine. He goes, well, I liked watching you play. And that was about it. But, at the time, it's like he's Donald Trump, the star. You never thought in a million years he'd become president. There's a lot of people still thinking that. <laughs> uh, we have been blessed to be with Tom Coverdale, former Indiana Mr. Basketball and point guard on IU's 2002 Final Four team. Uh, just real quick before we do the five questions, I said you were the best shooter on that team. Were you? Better in Hornsby? At certain moments, but I'd say overall Hornsby was the best shooter. <laughs> when I was getting ready to shoot, I thought I was the best shooter, though. Does that count? <laughs> when the ball was passed to you, <laughs> exactly. you're like, uh, 
we end every podcast with the same five questions. Uh, so question number one, what was your first job? Working the clock and keeping track of fouls at a Sunday basketball league at Noblesville Boys and Girls Club. <laughs> was it Alfred said he learned how to count on a basketball scoreboard? That, <laughs> that's how he learned. Uh, what was your first concert that you paid for? Horde Fest, where they had a bunch of different. It was the first time my I talked oh, yeah. my parents into letting go, letting me go with my brother and all of his friends. And I think this was back in like '93 or something like that. And it was, it will it will always be Deer Creek to me. So it was Deer sure. Creek. If you could recommend any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Um, Extreme Ownership. It's by a guy named Jocko and and his partner. They were the leaders of uh, our our most celebrated unit in Afghanistan and Iraq, and now they're consultants for business as well. So uh, this whole book is the first half of each chapter is some, something they learned during combat and during the war and how they related it to the business world. And it's it's an amazing book, Extreme Ownership. If you could witness any event in history, be there as it happened. This is going to sound weird, but I would be there the day JFK got shot because I'm still a big conspiracy theory and I want to know what happened. So you want to be in the school book depository? I want to be there and see if Oswald actually did it. Or would you rather be on the grassy knoll? I would probably have two or three friends and we'd have every location <laughs> scouted covered. out and videotape so we would know every single thing that happened. And your very quickly your theory is um, Magic Bullet or um Hidden Gunman. I think it was Hidden Gunman. <laughs> I don't think that that answer will ever be duplicated no. in the future of this podcast. Last question, not including family members as we call the Greg Ballard rule. If you could have dinner with anyone in the world, whom would you choose? Oh, man, that's a tough question. couple hours just chatting. Uh, I would probably say Michael Jordan. Did you ever get to meet him? I have not. But just the amount of stories that that guy probably has, not even just basketball, but everything outside of basketball he's experienced i think that would be amazing plus he plus his experience with night on the olympic exactly team, for sure exactly tom we can't thank you enough we're going to broadcast this in a couple of weeks as we hit the final four uh, all of us who are iu basketball fans uh, are in all of your grit and determination and your basketball acumen and you know you brought a lot of joy to a lot of people and we can't thank you enough for your time today and good luck and please tell Rachel and that's Rachel Coverdale of Coverdale Consulting so if you need any social media or marketing or PR help please get a hold of Rachel uh, thank you very much for your time today thanks for having me it was a good time thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated if you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com.